Mosaic. My name is Dylan. It's great to worship together this morning. Please remain standing or stand up if you haven't, and we'll read today's scripture. There are two passages today we will be reading. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told, that, told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into, into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Thank you. You can be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you all today. Um, I was looking around during meet and greet and thinking that I recognized most of everyone here. But if I haven't met you, uh, my name is Adam, and I um, spent about six and a half years as a pastor here at Mosaic. And about three months ago, transitioned to a new role um, as the Washington County Programs Director for the Salvation Army. And it's been going well so far. They've not fired me. I'm three months in, so that feels like something, right? Uh, it's, it's been quite an adventure. In fact, I've got a few um, kind of family, Harvey family updates. One I'll share now and one I'll share in a little bit. Um, but the downside of my new role is it's about 80 miles a day round trip of commuting from basically Camas to South Hillsboro. So I spend about three and a half hours a day in the car right now. Uh, needless to say, when we took this role, we knew at some point we would need to relocate to Washington County, and that is happening. We sold our house last week in Vancouver, and we'll be closing on a house uh, tomorrow in Beaverton. So it's a little chaotic in my house at the moment. We're, we're getting ready to move. Um, but it's been going really well. I've, I've relished the time in the three months. And I think the highlight for me has getting to have a front row seat to see God at work in people's lives. Over the, the past three months, I've seen people come to faith. Um, I've seen people come out of addiction and all kinds of bondages. I've seen people take charge of their lives and move out of poverty and take steps of responsibility and care for themselves. And I'm so excited about this because it's God at work saving people. And I know that, that when people come through the doors of, of the Hope Center uh, that, that we're establishing, that they're, they're coming for a food box, uh, they're coming for counseling, they're coming for some kind of assistance uh, to be part of a discipleship program. They're coming for all those reasons, but really why they're walking through that door is for hope. 
a reason to have faith, to believe that they're seen, that they're loved, and that the God of the universe can meet them in their brokenness and save them. That's our God, the God who saves. So today, as we're walking into this, uh, this, this summer series, we're gonna be looking at a story of redemption, a story again that reveals the character and the heart and the power of God to redeem and to save lives. And it's true that, that if God is in the business of saving lives, what does that mean about us? We're, we're in need of his saving, right? Whether it's a circumstance in our life, whether it's our physical bodies, whether it's a relationship, whether it's our own folly, we find ourselves at the limits of our ability and our knowledge and in need of the God who saves. And so as we look at this story today, there, there's a few things I'm hoping that we glean from this story. First is that we get yet another picture of God's character, that this is just who he is. It exudes from him naturally. He is love, he is power, and he has the power to save and to meet us in our human condition, that we would see that God, the God who saves, um, that we would realize God's power at work in us when he does redeem and save has a ripple effect that affects people around us and community around us. And that God's work in our lives is not just about us, but it has impact on lives around us. And then I wanna end our time actually looking at a passage from the New Testament, the book of James, as a prescriptive directive for us and how we lead our hearts while we're waiting for God to meet us and to save us. And so this morning, we're gonna be looking at the story of Joseph. Um, and you can turn to your Bibles there in Genesis 37. And while you're making your way, I'm gonna pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for today. Thank you for community. Thank you that we get to be in this place, uh, celebrating and singing these songs and enjoying community centered around this reality that you're the God of the universe. And because of that, we have hope. God, each and every one of us in this space, listening online, listening at a later time, each and every one of us are in need of your saving power. Each and every one of us are in need of hope. And I ask today that your spirit would fan into flame the embers of hope burning in our heart, that you would renew our faith, you would renew our confidence and trust in you, that we would be the people who expect and receive because we have faith and that we get to tell stories of your redemption over and over. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for today. Amen. So the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph's story spans 10 chapters in Genesis. And so I'm gonna be skipping a stone across the surface of his life and, and highlighting a few things that happen. Uh, to give a little bit of context of who Joseph is and why his story is so significant, I actually wanna back up from Genesis 37 to Genesis 12 and, and to actually start with the story of his great-great-grandfather and his great-great-grandmother, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, they were um, given a covenant by God um, they were, were a couple and they were told by God that I'm gonna make you a great family that's gonna become a great nation and all peoples of earth will be blessed through you. This promise then was handed down to their son, Isaac, who handed it to his son, Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God and was blessed by God and his name was changed from Jacob to Israel and he had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph is son 11. So he's part of this family, he's part of this lineage, and we get to step into his story 
and see how God not just redeems him, but through him, ripple effects of God saving power is going out. So we're gonna start with his story. This is Genesis 37, starting in verse three. It says this, now Israel, who we just discovered is Jacob, whose name was changed, loved Joseph more than any uh, his other of his sons because he had, was born to him in an old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He had said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaths of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheath rose and stood upright while your sheaths gathered, gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of the dream that he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told this to his father as well and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So we begin this story. And, and a little caveat to this story. Every time I've heard this story portrayed or I've seen the, the motion picture of this story, Joseph is always betrayed as kind of being spoiled and rubbing this in his face. As a fellow baby of the family, I'm the youngest of five, it's not our fault that we're the favorite. You firstborns just need to chill and get over it. Joseph is given this amazing gift. God speaks to him through a dream and tells him something significant about his life, that he has a plan, that he has a destiny and a trajectory coupled with the fact that his great grandpa was given a covenant by God that's being handed down generation after generation. Joseph is in a place of clarity. Joseph is in a place where he is confident of what God wants to do with his life. And he's excited about what God wants to do with his life. And in his exuberance, sharing with his brothers, sharing with his parents, there's a moment of jealousy and hatred. I think we read the word hate four times in that passage I just read. And so he's in this place of orientation. He understands God. He understands that there's value and purpose towards his life. His footing is clear, his pathway is clear, his vision is clear, and he's in a place of orientation. There's this pattern that happens throughout scripture, and it's part of the human experience throughout scripture where people find an orientation, they're clear, God is speaking to them, they're given a covenant, they're given a promise, they're made new, they're forgiven. Then the human factor steps in and they find themselves in disorientation. Things are murky. The ground beneath them shakes. The ground beneath them begins to slip. There's hurt. There's there's, there's a shame, there's, there's brokenness. And in that, we meet the God who saves, who reorients our lives back to him, back to his covenants and back to his promise. I was recently um, talking to someone about uh, when I went to Bible school in Las Vegas, and it's where I met my wife and it was, it was great. Our Bible school was not in a casino. They asked me that, I was like, no, it wasn't a casino. It would've been cool though. 
We were in Vegas for, for a, a season. And the thing about Vegas is a, it's a desert city in a giant valley surrounded by mountains. And the only way you can get there if you don't fly, if you're driving, is going over a pretty rigged mountain pass. Lots of curves and turns and bends. And so when you get into the city, it's very disorienting. And I like to really orient myself with like, you know, north, south and have an idea where I am. Vegas is very hard to do that, but in the middle of Vegas is the, the Las Vegas Boulevard, the Strip. It's a seven mile strip where all the famous casinos are. And at the north end of it is this 1100 foot tower called the Stratosphere. You can see that literally from anywhere in Las Vegas and know exactly where you are. It's this point of orientation that gives clarity. Oh, that's north, I need to go this way. This was before I had a cell phone, so I very much needed this. But this sense of orientation in our lives, it represents clarity and sure-footedness where what we hope for seems like it's in reach and it seems tangible. Where we're created, or where what we're created to do seems like our heading and there's a sense of clarity and calm in that. Joseph, the dreamer, is in this place. And his brothers are upset with him, but, but God is doing something in him. God has a trajectory and a plan for his life, but a storm is about to befall him. I think about storms in our lives as we're either in a storm, we're just coming out of a storm, or one is right around the corner. I, I wish that that weren't true, I wish that this book said that when we begin to follow Jesus, the storms of life just all go away. As I read the stories in here, that doesn't seem to be the case. So Joseph is in this place of orientation. God has a plan. And then the story goes on that, that his, uh, his brothers are out tending the flock in the field and he is with his dad, not working, which his dad's a little bit guilty in this situation, kind of setting him up to, to not be loved very much by his brothers. But but he sends him out to his brothers and they see him far off. And this is the account, this is in verse 18. But they saw him in the distance and before he reached him, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns and say their ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Do not take his life, he said, don't shed any blood. Throw him into a cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben uh, said this to rescue him and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, the one that his dad had given him. And they took him and threw him into a cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. So he goes out to meet his brothers and he's wearing his ornate robe that his dad had specially given him. As he's approaching, his brothers are so moved by jealousy and hate, they literally plan to kill him, but for one brother who stops them. They decide to throw him into a cistern, which these are just hand-dug wells that have dried up. And then as the story goes on, they, they see a traveling caravan of Ishmaelites, and they said, hey, we might as well make a profit from this situation. Let's, let's sell him. And, and let him be enslaved by the Ishmaelites so that we have something. And they, they take his, his ornate robe, they dip it in blood, they go back to his father and they tell his father he's been killed by a wild animal. And Joseph the dreamer, the one who'd been given this promise by God, whose family had been given a promise by God, now finds himself at 17, traveling to a foreign country, sold into slavery, loss of everything, loss of his dreams 
loss of his father's love, loss of his family, loss of even his identity, absolute disorientation. I think to some degree, we, we know what that feels like, where things are unjust, or unfair, where there's not clarity, where the faith that we're hoping for and relying on seems thin, seems hard to find, where life has dealt us a situation or heartache that we don't know what to do with. When Dana and I first got married, we lived in a very small town, very close to my grandparents. And um, every Sunday after church, I was working at a small country church, and every Sunday after church, we would go have lunch with my grandparents, pot roast every Sunday. It was fantastic. And it was such a sweet time for the four of us. And I would, I would just ask them questions after questions because they had journeyed with Jesus for decades, 50 years, and had gone through so much life. And one day, I mustered up the courage to ask them about when their oldest son was killed. And I, I had known growing up in my family that it was a massive event. It was kind of one of those things that split the timeline of our family before Mike and, and after my uncle Mike died. And, and I know that the nature of his death was, was fairly horrific. He was young in his 20s and being foolish and had drank way too much, was driving way too fast and wrecked his, his Volkswagen bug and lost his life. And I know that it was, it was devastating, but, but I'd never actually heard my grandparents talk about it. And, and I asked them, not just about the situation, but I asked them, how did you hold on to your faith by going through that? And, and it was hard. It was a hard conversation. My grandma began to cry. She said, I, it, it felt like it was almost impossible to hold in one hand this fact and truth that I believe about a loving God who is powerful and who can rescue and who sees me and cares about me and loves my family. And in the other hand, the loss of my firstborn son. She said, Adam, it, it felt like it was absolutely impossible that the faith I'd always been standing on just vanished beneath my feet. And I was absolutely confused and bewildered. And she said that all I could do was just trust. Trust that God is bigger than this moment, that he is more good than the pain that I feel, that he is more loving, that he is more able, that his redemptive power stretches beyond my imagination. And she said, over time, God began to meet me faithfully to heal my heart. He began to meet me and to soothe the grief. She said, I realized that he was grieving with me, that he was present with me in every step as he was saving me. God meets us in this moment when we are so disoriented, broken, because of what's happened to us, because of what we've done, the folly, the poor decisions that we've made. Man, we can make a mess of things sometimes. God is faithful to meet us in these places. Joseph is in dire place. He's lost everything. He's lost his identity. The Ishmaelites are taking him to Egypt and his story picks back up in 39.1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in this house with the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him 
and that the Lord had given him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From that time, he put him in charge of his household. All that he owned, the Lord blessed and the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. Reorientation. Joseph is picked out of this situation where he was enslaved, where his story was going to terminate, where there was not hope, and the God who saves does just that. He meets him, redeems him, elevates him to the extent that this man who is second in command of Pharaoh, who is the leader of Egypt, the most powerful nation at this time, elevates him to the point that Potiphar recognizes everything that this guy touches, everything that this guy managed turns to gold. What is going on? God's hand is on this young man. And his story is elevated. Now here's the thing about Joseph's story though. And here's the thing that we know to be true about our story. We don't go through a single season of unclarity and frustration and then God redeems us and all is well. It's a repeating story. It happens over and over again. That part of the human experience is experiencing loss. Part of the human experience is experiencing confusion that our faith will be tested. And Jesus told his disciple this, hey, in this life, you will have trouble. You're going to face trials. You're gonna face frustrations. You're gonna face doubt. It's gonna happen over and over. Sure enough, that's Joseph's story. As he's serving in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife is attracted to Joseph. She makes advances at him and he is absolute resolve, has nothing to do with her. In fact, it says that he flees and runs from her and she contrives a lie about him saying that, that he assaulted her and he finds himself in prison, right? Dreaming in his house with his father's promise, so much promise in life enslaved, elevated to Potiphar's house with a trajectory and a hope imprisoned. The God who saves meets him in this place. He interprets some dreams while he's there and, and this gift that God has given him of dreaming and interpreting dreaming is beginning to come to the surface. And, and through a series of events, he finds himself in an audience with Pharaoh, the leader of the entire nation who has had these really weird and troubling dreams. And I encourage you, I know we're just skipping a stone across the surface of this story. I encourage you to go and read it. It's a fantastic story, but he, he has these dreams about these cows that are, are well-fed and, and, and they look healthy. And then there's these other cows that come and they're gaunt and they look too skinny and they eat the other cows. And he's perplexed by this dream. And, and, and it's not just a weird food dream. It keeps coming up and haunting him. He knows that it means something, but no one can tell him what it means. And then there's, there's rumor about this guy in prison who can interpret dreams. And Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. And by the power of God, he interprets the dream. And he says, Pharaoh, there's gonna be a season of plenty in the land. Rain is gonna come, harvest is gonna be plentiful. There's gonna be bounty more than enough. But after that, there's gonna be seven years of drought and famine. So we need to prepare. And Pharaoh realizes God is using Joseph and that this dream is going to come true and does what's necessary and installs Joseph as second in command of all of Egypt to execute this plan. 
Man, his life is just up and down, up and down. What feels like loss and gone and, and desolation is then revived by the God who saves. Now we, we get the advantage of reading this chapter after chapter in a span of maybe 10 minutes. This was lived for him. Weeks, months, years of destitute, not knowing how my life is gonna go forward. But the God who saves is faithful and meets him. The story continues. He sets Egypt up well. They fill up the storehouses. They fill up the grain silos. They prepare for the drought so that when the drought comes, they are ready. And they're so prepared that other nations and other peoples in surrounding areas begin to come to Egypt in need because they didn't know this drought was coming. And some of those people that come are who? It's Joseph's family. They're out of food. So the brothers have come and, and Joseph recognizes them. And it's this really great story, this back and forth. He tricks them. He uh, accuses one of them of stealing and has them come back. And he's meeting his younger brother for the first time. And it's just this amazing story, but it culminates in this interaction with them where he reveals some clarity for us. This is in Genesis 45, starting in verse four. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of the entire household and ruler over all of Egypt. Joseph recognizes that in every season and every turn of his life, through the promise, through the devastation, that he was saving him. That God used all of it for his saving. That God used all of it to have a ripple effect to save not just him, but peoples all around. The preservation of this nation that God made a promise to, that Israel would come to this place and under Joseph's care would grow and actually become a nation. God is always at work in our lives. When we don't see it, when we don't sense it, when we don't feel it, even when we don't believe it, God is at work and he uses all of it. He uses the moments of clarity and orientation. He uses those moments to reveal to us his design. What's, what's fascinating about this book that the book ends, the very beginning and the very end of this book, give us a picture of perfect unity with God. In Genesis 3, we, we get this picture of, of God who would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, surrounded by absolute perfection, no pain, no brokenness, walking face to face with God. Then in Revelations 21, at the other end of the Bible, in, in verse three and four, it says, this is a, 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 pro, a prophecy um, by John. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. 
they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older, the old order of things has passed away. This Bible of ours is bookended with, with the, this picture of orientation of God and us being in perfect unity with him. Where this thing called faith that, that we, we seek to believe is obsolete because we can look at we can talk to God. We can be present fully with him. God uses that. God uses disorientation and chaos in our lives. He uses the things that we feel are most broken about us to reveal his saving power to us and to people around us. I'm gonna read this passage that I mentioned out of James. Uh, this is James chapter one, three verses, starting verse two. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I told you I had a few family updates. Here's the second one. We've been working for a little over a year at getting my oldest daughter her driver's license. It's been some work. She's not here. She's in Arizona. So this is just between you and I. She's very timid about this thing. Uh, she's sharp as a whip, excels in school, excels in so many places, but when it comes to driving, she's just very intimidated. And then our, our um, posture with her as her parents is, hey, we're, we're gonna keep pushing this. I know it seems like a hurdle, but you gotta get over it, but we'll be gracious through the process. And so we're, we're hurting her, we're pushing her. And finally, she gets to the point. And, and in Washington State, it, you have to go through a third-party company and take all these classes, and it costs a fortune. It's a racket. But it culminates in a driving test, and it was the day for her driving test. And we had practiced everything, and it's mostly the classic stuff. You have to parallel park and, you know, this stuff and all the things. But in Washington State, you have to do this one thing where, where you back around a corner and have to stay within 18 inches of the curb the entire time. And as we were working on it, and I'm instructing Allie how to do this, I'm thinking in my mind, I'm not sure I can do that. <laughs> Don't tell Washington State because I already have my license. But we practiced it, and we practiced it, and we practiced it. And finally, the day of her test came, and she's out. They, I, I take her to the, the place that's going to do it, and I'm just nervously waiting, praying. And they're out, and they come back in five minutes. I was like, that's not good. Sure enough, that was the first thing that they did, and she bumped the curve. The test was immediately over. They bring her back, she failed. And as they're pulling up, she's pale faced. She doesn't say anything, she just gets in the car and I get in the car and she just loses it. Just devastated. I, I didn't realize how much she had built this up and the, it just crushed. We got home and she laid in bed and just cried and cried and cried and just was devastated. And, and eventually um, after she kind of settled down, I went to her room and, and we, we, we talked about it and and uh, we talked about kind of what went wrong. She tells me, Dad, I'm never going to drive again. That's what I did, but only inside. <laughs> I held it inside. I told her, yeah, you will. You will. And in fact, these seasons, these things that happen to us in life, they can actually teach us a lot. They teach us a lot about ourselves. They can teach us a lot about God. I mean, you might even learn something about your dad through this circumstance. And I remember this, this uh, story that I had read, this article I'd read years ago, and it seemed like an appropriate time to share it, but it was about um, 
in the 80s in Arizona, they built this thing called the biosphere. And it was a huge deal for me in the 80s to learn about the biosphere because the whole idea was this big government funded project to build this dome to create opportunity for life on other planets. It's like the most 80s thing you've ever heard, right? So they build this thing and it's, it, it's curated, it's perfect inside. They control the temperature, they control the, the moisture, the humidity, everything is perfect. And so they're growing all kinds of vegetation. They're like, we're gonna live on Mars, this is great. They begin to grow trees because they need the fruit from the trees and the trees grow in this perfect environment. They get to a certain height and they fall over. And they're, they're confused. They're like, man, we, we put this soil here. It's perfectly balanced. We tested it. We have the exact amount of sunshine it's supposed to have, the exact amount of water. The temperature is perfect. Over and over, the trees would grow and they would fall and fall and they couldn't figure it out. And this article said that finally someone reached out to a, a, uh, a, this older guy who had been a botanist for years and years and he came in and as they told him about the problem, he laughs and he says, trees don't grow in perfection. They need the drought because when drought hits, their tap roots go down into the water. They need the cold, freezing winters because it makes their bark grow strong and thick. And he said they need the storm and the wind because as it shakes, it makes their roots grow down and take hold of the soil. They can't grow without that adversity. So we began to share and talk about this. God meets us and redeems us in the most desperate, broken places of our lives. And oftentimes when he does that, it causes our faith to grow. That's not to say it doesn't hurt. It's not to say there isn't grief. It's not to say that, that God doesn't hurt for us and with us, but he redeems everything. This is what James 1 is saying. The posture of our heart and the trials that we're facing, each and every one of us could identify a place where we are trying to hope and believe that God is gonna be faithful. And in that waiting, the, the posture of heart that James invited us into is to be humble. To be humble enough to say we need to be saved. And we live in a cultural moment where it is far more tempting to wear a mask, to kind of put out to the world confidence, to curate what you see about me through my real life, through my digital life, but to have the confidence in God's goodness, to be humble enough to say, I don't know, God, I'm broken. God, I'm confused. God, I am lost. God, I am hurting. God, where are you at? I'm gonna lay my pride aside and embrace this, to be humble, to come with a heart of gratitude. It's amazing to me, maybe you can relate. When things go really well in my life, I sometimes think, man, I'm doing a pretty good job. Man, I did that, that went really well. Man, and when things aren't going well, God, where are you at? God, how did you let this happen? But this heart of gratitude, it actually leads us to see the goodness of God. It leads us to understand that the God is gonna save us. It might not look the way I want it to look. It might not be the script that I have written, but I'm grateful because he knows more than me. He loves better than me. He's more powerful than me to come with gratitude and to come with perseverance, to keep bringing faithfulness over and over. There will be seasons where faith will seem easy to you, where you will feel and sense the presence of God. You'll have such clarity 
about his love for you and your role in the world. And then there'll be seasons where it feels like none of that is true. And we're called to persevere, to be people who because of their faith do not quit, but persevere. My family update, Monday, Allie got her license. That's all I ever needed to know that God can save because that was, that second test, I don't think I've prayed like that in a long time. Your father knows you. He's familiar with all of your life. He knows where you hurt. He knows where you experience brokenness. He's a good father. He's got the power to save. Come humbly before him with gratitude and keep coming back over and over and over because he is the God that saves and he is faithful. I invite our, our team to come back up. We're gonna continue worship through communion. And, and I, I offered those words of, of phases of the human condition of orientation, disorientation, reorientation, where, where we experience things as they should be and then they break and then God fixes them. This table with the juice and the bread is a physical representation of the God who saves making things right, bringing order back. And the extent that he was willing to go to set us back into relationship with him and to reorient us to himself. And Jesus instructed the one we gather that we do this as part of our worship, retelling ourselves the story about the God who saves. And whatever we're experiencing, we get to come to this table. Whatever emotions we have, whatever we're fighting against, we get to come to the table of hope and recognize that there's a God who saves represented by these elements. And we take the bread that represents God's body or Jesus' body. We take the juice that represents his blood shed and recognize that this is his saving power at work within us. So over the next few moments, I'm gonna invite you as we, we sing, uh, Phil and the team are gonna lead us into a new song and, and be teaching us a new song to, to think about these words that we're about to sing, to think about the God who saves. And when you're ready to come to this table and recognize humbly he is the God who saves you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story um, about Joseph, um, of his perseverance, his trust in you, um, and the, the display of your great saving power shown to him, shown to his family that became the, the nation of Israel, shown to all of the, the community around him. God, would that be true of our lives, that we would be people who will not tolerate anything but the best you have for us, that we would strive to be with you, that we would, <laughs> would be persistent with our hope and our faith in you, that we wouldn't find ourselves in neutral, but Lord, we would persevere and push and be motivated by our faith. So Father, we thank you for this time. And as we come to these tables, we come to the God who saves and we take these elements remembering your saving power in our lives. And we are grateful. We are so grateful. And Father, we worship you today. In your name, amen.